now, this evening, we, we start this new series in Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. It's a letter that, unlike others in the New Testament, is not written to deal with a particular problem in the church, but rather it's a letter that's rich in the joy of the Christian life. And it's breathtaking in its theological grasp of the scope of God's purposes uh, for his church. It's a letter that should lead us quickly to respond in joyful worship and praise. And all of that is particularly true of this evening's passage. There's so much here. It is a theologically dense passage. We could spend weeks just on those few verses. In fact, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had a whole book just on that first chapter. Uh, So we are kind of skimming over the surface almost as we have a look at these verses this evening. But I do hope that as we do that, as we skim through these first 14 verses, that you will see something of the wonder of God's wonderful work of salvation, which we have in Christ, and that you and I will be spurred on to praise God this evening. Now, one of the things that I love to do uh, back in South Africa when I was a young man and um, a few of our, my mates, we would often uh, go mountain trailing. And so we'd pretty much pack a bag each and we'd have it on our backpack and we'd go off into the mountains uh, far away from all civilization and we'd follow a trail of several days long. And as you go along, there'd be these little huts that have been built where you can just sleep overnight and you'd make a fire and you'd be very manly about it all. Um, well, I remember one particular five-day trip. Uh, The first three days was absolute nightmare. It was a slog the whole way. The path was rocky. Uh, The views were all obscured um, uh, from both sides. It was steep. Uh, There was very little to see. And to top it all, it was pouring with rain. In fact, I'd say it was sleeting with rain. It was awful. Everything was wet. It just felt dreary. It was, you know, by the end of the third day, you just wanted to give up and go home. However, on the fourth day, it all changed. Uh, the weather turned and the sun came up. And very early on, on the walk, uh, the path took us to the peak of the mountain. Uh, and as we got to the top and went to the lookout and looked out over, over the most stunning valley that was bright as the sun's rays poured onto the valley and you could see uh, the lush vegetation and the beautiful fields that have been almost like patchwork where uh, the farmers have been working and as we walked uh, early in the morning uh, you could hear the rural farmers walking to their fields and as they walked uh, they would sing and and as they sang the different people walking in a different part of the valley would pick it up and, and sing a harmony. And after a little while, the whole valley sounded like uh, this wonderful choir. Uh, you could literally think the hills are alive at the sound of music. Uh, it was a little like that. And it was the absolute making of the trip. Now, if we are honest, sometimes the Christian life can feel a little bit like those first three days of that trail can just feel like one big, massive slog. Sort of one routine after the other. Um, 
just hard work, going, getting up in the morning, coming to church at night when it's dark and cold and rainy outside. And the last thing you want to do is leave your cosy, warm bed uh, with the electric blanket on. Uh, my wife's blushing. Uh, and come out to church. Uh, getting up in the morning to read your Bible and pray. Making sure that as you walk through the day that you are being godly and gracious and kind and other person centred in every way. Sometimes I can just feel all too much and particularly when the world seems to be all against you and people are rude and nasty and all those kind of things. And you just want to give up and be nasty back and just have had enough. Well in the letter to the Ephesians Paul leads us as it were to the very edge of the outlook on top of the mountain and where he then stretches out before us in his letter uh, the wonder of God's great plan for the church. He gets us to lift our eyes and see the glory of God's great salvation. How we have been blessed in Christ. And not just partial blessings. Not incomplete blessings but how we have been fully blessed in Christ. Blessings that should move us to join with Paul as he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I wonder if that's how you see your Christian life this evening. Blessed in in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Well, I want to look at uh, this passage under three big headings and a couple of small headings along the way. Uh, so here's our first point. Well, it's a very weird text. I didn't use that font when I typed it up, but anyway, uh, hopefully you can read it. Uh, and yes, if you're taking notes, here's the first big heading I want us to get our heads around. Uh, God has chosen us for his own. That is true if we are Christian here this evening. God has chosen us for his own. One of the most amazing truths of scripture is that God should choose you and me to be saved. Now, it's a doctrine that causes a lot of consternation, perhaps more consternation than any other doctrine um, amongst Christians. However, Paul, you see, does not hesitate He's not ashamed of this teaching. He says it plainly. Look at verse 4 and 6 to 6. It's not me saying this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, there's many things that I could say about this. There literally have been books written on the subject of God choosing. But I want to just say three things. Firstly, that in choosing us, salvation begins with God. Right from before the very creation, God chose You see, you and I only choose God, you and I only decided for God because he first chose us. 
The Bible over and over again makes this point that salvation is all of God. If it ultimately started with us, it would be down to us for our salvation. And that's a risky path to be on. I wouldn't want to trust myself on saving anything. But to know that God chose me is a great relief. And he makes it even more clear a little further on in Ephesians. In fact, all of what he says here in chapter 1, he picks up again through the rest of his letter. But if you just flip over, uh, just look across, glance across the page to chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, and he says this, so he reiterates this point. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a group and they're picking a team, maybe a team to play sports or something like that. Have you ever been that last one that no one wants to pick? Um, it's not a great place to be, is it? I say that with sufficient feeling and personal experience. Um, it's not great when they're all picking their team and all oh, you want to be with the good lot, but you know that nobody picks you and you're left standing there like a little so-and-so at the end and nobody's picked you. And they say, all right, we'll have you in the end. Uh, It's an awful feeling. What an amazing thing that God, right from before creation, should choose you, should choose me. It is an awesome thing. For those of us who are Christians, what a great joy to know God has chosen us. But why, we might say, why should God choose me? You might ask the same question. Uh, Well, the Bible doesn't give us an answer except to say it involved God's love, verse 4, God's will and pleasure, verse 5, and God's grace, verse 7. This is all God taking the initiative. God acting in love according to his purposes and pleasure. And as an act of grace. All of God. So salvation begins with God. But more than that, in choosing us, we discover that God includes us in his family. Isn't that an awesome thought? Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You see, when we are chosen, we are not just part of the team. Oh no, we are much, much more than that. God chooses us and gives us the status of being sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? Now, in Paul's day, uh, the Roman laws of the day gave the adopted child equal status, exactly the same rights as natural children. Uh, Which is exactly what Paul has in mind here. You see, this speaks of intimate relationship. That we are children of God. Free access to the Father. Dependence on Him. An amazing privilege. And the thought that we can call God Father. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? And then notice 
that with this privilege of being chosen and of being adopted into God's family comes responsibility. For in choosing us, we see thirdly that God's purpose is for us to be holy and blameless. Verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, apart from surnames, one of the things that mark us out as belonging to a particular family is our likeness to one or both parents, not only in looks, but also in mannerisms. It is a surreal and frightening experience when you begin to see your own children responding in exactly the same way you would to any given situation, using the same mannerisms. Now, sometimes I think my children do that just to mock me and tease me. Uh, But it is remarkably interesting to see uh, some of those similarities rising up, identifying them very clearly as Judith and mine. Well, God chooses us, calls us into his family to be his children for a purpose, that we would be like him, holy and blameless. And Paul again picks up on this theme much later on in his letter, uh, much further on in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. He says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You see? Now the important question then is, how has God accomplished all this? God has chosen us for his own. How is it possible that we are chosen and adopted and set apart? Well, here's my second big heading then. God has done this all in Christ. He has done it all in Christ. How has he done it? He has done it in Christ. Now, one key phrase that keeps appearing in these 14 verses, and it is this phrase, in Christ. If you go home and read it again, you count them all up, there should be 15. 15 times in 14 verses. We read, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. For it is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that we receive these great privileges. In other words, if you don't have Jesus, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, you don't have these blessings. They are not yours. They are only for those who are in Christ. Because the blessings come to us through Jesus Christ. For Paul tells us that it is in Christ that we are redeemed at the cross. Look at verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It is at the cross that Jesus paid the price. His blood was shed there for us that we are freed and rescued, that we, have, that we are redeemed from bondage to sin. The picture here really is of the slave markets. And the only way to be freed would be if someone comes and buys you and sets you free and pays the price for you. And that's what Christ did for us on the cross. He paid the price and the price he paid was his death, his blood shed. 
on the cross. Now that's really important for us to take hold because I sometimes think we don't necessarily grasp the cost to Christ for dealing with our sin. And because of that, we take sin very lightly in our lives. We don't worry too much about, oh, it's a little white sin there, not too serious. Don't bother about it. It's a small thing. Well, just remember that small thing, along with all the other things, are the very things that led Christ to the cross to die for you and for me. And he did that. He paid the price. He paid the price that God's justice demanded on the cross so that in turn we might go free. We might be redeemed in Christ. But more than that, it is also through Christ God's plan for creation is made known. Look at verse 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that God has made known to the church his eternal purposes and plan for his creation. Paul tells us that, the, that history is not just some kind of random set of events. As Christians, we know what is coming up. And the goal of creation is neither chaos nor disunity, but unity. And that unity is centered around God's anointed King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see some evidence of that, of this unity that Christ brings, uh, when we gather together as God's people. And we're made up of a whole weird bunch of us all together, all different in our own unique kind of way. And yet we come together and find joy and delight and unity in Christ. I don't know if you've ever had this experience when going on holiday abroad and you've met somebody who uh, you discover is a Christian. And there's almost like an immediate connection. You don't know them from Adam. But they are suddenly your good mates. And you're able to talk and you're able to, there's a connection with them. That is part of the unity that Christ brings. And we experience something of that. However, of course, as we look in our world today, we have to acknowledge that not everyone does acknowledge Jesus as King. But you see, verse 10 tells us that the time will come when God will bring everything together under the rule of Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing is that in Christ we participate in and are part of that great plan for creation. That is why we go out and share the good news with others. That's why we do evangelism. That's why we call people, invite people to come to Jesus. It's part of that, part of God's great eternal purposes to bring everything and everyone under the rule of Christ. But you know, it's even more amazing than that. Not only has God chosen us to be his own, and not only has he done all of that through Jesus Christ on the cross, but finally as we look at this passage we notice that because of that, we who are in Christ 
have a certain future. We have a certain future. You see, this is not just pie in the sky when we die kind of thing. It's not just wishful thinking. It may seem just a little too amazing, perhaps, too wonderful to be true. And perhaps like some of the Gentile readers who would have been reading this letter for the first time, you may be asking, well, is that really for me? Am I included in all of this? Can I be sure? Well, Paul takes us to these awesome blessings and applies them directly to us who are in Christ. Look what he says in verse 13. In him, again, in Christ, that is, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So if you have heard the gospel of salvation, that Jesus died for you on the cross, and you believe that truth, and you're trusting in Jesus and his death for you on the cross, then this is true for you. You are in Christ. And you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, of course, many have heard the gospel, but it's only when the hearing is combined with belief, with faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, like the Ephesian Christians, that the above is true. And so Paul says that if we are in Christ and we have believed, then we are marked by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 again In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And the idea here is that the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer and marks us out as God's possession. I heard a story of an energy sales rep. I don't know if you've ever had any of these people. Either they contact you by phone or sometimes they even come door to door. And I know someone in our street who had an energy supplier person come to their door uh, and invited them to change suppliers and they turned them away only to discover that this jolly person had gone off and signed their name on the transfer change and... Uh, this person discovered that his energy supplier was currently in the process of being um, transferred to some other company. So he took it up with the, with the um, company that was doing all this and was able to get it all reversed simply because they could not prove that the signature that was on the paper was his. That it was authentic. So now the Holy Spirit is God's seal of authenticity. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives as Christians guarantees our future inheritance. He is, as it were, a deposit of what is to come. Now in South Africa we have this weird thing called a lay-by. Have you ever heard of it? And that's got nothing to do with cars parking in the side of the road, funny enough. It's got to do with transactions. Um, because what you can do is if you go to a shop and you see an item that you really want but you don't have all the money for it, then you can enter into what they call a lay-by agreement. And what that means is that the shopkeeper will take that item and lay it aside. So it's lay-by, lay it aside. So you give him what money you have and that's the guarantee that you're going to come back with the rest and pay the full amount. 
and in doing that, he will lay it aside and keep it for you for a period of time. If you don't turn up, you lose that money, of course. But if you do turn up, because he's laid it aside, you're assured of getting what you wanted to get. So your deposit, your money that you give, that what you have, is your guarantee that you're going to come back and pay the rest in order to take the item away. And although we have not seen the fullness of our redemption that God has planned for us in Christ, it is guaranteed. God has personally pledged it by giving us the Holy Spirit. He is, as it were, that guarantee. So, let me conclude. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians and us to see just how richly blessed we are with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And hopefully, as we skimmed through this passage, you have glimpsed something of the wonder of God's great blessings to those of us who are Christians. That God has made us his own. He has chosen us. And he has done it all in Christ. It's all his work. And therefore, because of that, we have a certain future to look forward to that is guaranteed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. God the Father chooses, God the Son redeems, and God the Holy Spirit seals us. You see the work of the Trinity in our salvation for the day of our redemption. And do you notice that all of this is to one end? It's not that we can all go away saying, oh, lucky me, what a great guy I am, uh, God chose me. All of this is for God's glory. If you look at verse 6, look down, you'll see, to the praise of his glorious grace. Look further along to verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Look again further down to verse 14, to the praise of his glory. See, all of this, God does all of this, so that he might receive the glory and praise that is his due. See, life is not about us. Uh, we live in this me too culture and this me is all about me. It's not about me. And it's not about you. It's all about God. And it's about his glory. Everything we have and are in Christ comes from God and returns to God. So surely our response should be the same as Paul's as we consider this great truth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen.